0: Hi, Mike here. You might have noticed the nearly two-month gap between the release of episode three and this episode, episode four. The reason for the delay was that this podcast was the subject of a takedown application in the High Court. I explained what happened more at the top of this episode, but that's why it's taken so long. So here we go. Episode four of The Trial.
1: This episode of The Trial contains strong language.
2: you appreciate the difficulty I'm having with how great you are over certain details on this Sunday night, the Monday and the Tuesday? Up until the time that you're called and accused of this by Joe. Did you have anything to do with the disappearance? I've had anything to do with the disappearance. Can you give me one good reason why I should believe you. I'm
0: done From Stuff. This is the trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. The prosecution argued the motive was a love triangle. Benbow was angry because his former partner, Joanna Green, had started a relationship with McGrath. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. For nearly two months, reporters from the press newsroom in Christchurch were at the trial every day. Over this series, you'll hear all of the key evidence from the witnesses and the lawyers directly, although some recordings have been edited slightly for time and clarity. And because of court orders, we've distorted some voices and some exchanges are read by actors. We set out to produce this podcast in real time. We wanted to report on the trial as it unfolded and release the entire series as it concluded, with the final episode covering the verdict so we followed the strict rules around court reporting. David Benbow enjoyed the presumption of innocence. The prosecution had to convince the jury of his guilt, and the defense had to argue why the prosecution case was wrong. We were required to report both sides fairly and accurately. Benbow's defense team raised concerns after we'd released three episodes. They asked Justice Eaton, the judge presiding over the trial, to issue a takedown order. That would have required the removal of those episodes from the internet and, obviously, prevented us from releasing any more. Stuff opposed the application and after a hearing on April 27th, Justice Eaton rejected the defence request. So we can now conclude the series. We know the verdict, but we'll present the remaining episodes as if we don't to ensure both cases, the prosecution and defence, continue to get equal weight. In the last episode, we focused on the morning of the alleged murder and whether Michael McGrath and David Benbow met at Benbow's property. Remember, there was considerable focus on the power consumption at McGrath's place and various CCTV images presented by the prosecution. Now we're going to look at what the prosecution claims was the immediate aftermath, what they allege Benbow did in the 24 hours after he killed McGrath. Remember, because this is a case without a body, a murder weapon, or an exact crime scene, the Crown theory about Benbow's actions is built on circumstantial evidence. Here's a reminder of the key claims from Prosecutor Claire Bocher from her opening address.
1: The Crown case is that Mr. Benbow murdered Mr. McGrath at his property, Candy's Road, on the morning of Monday the 22nd of May, 2017, and disposed of Mr. McGrath's body such that it's never been found.
0: That's about the sum of it. However, a 10-day search of Benbow's property turned up no forensic evidence to support this. A forensic scientist gave evidence for the prosecution, but it was mostly a catalogue of what wasn't found. Testing with luminol, a solution that can detect faint traces of blood, showed no sign of blood being cleaned up inside or outside Benbow's home. The Crown did offer an explanation for why this might have been, which centred on the suppressor that Benbow had for his 22 caliber rifle. Here's Prosecutor Claire Bocher from the Crown opening again.
1: If Mr. Benbow did use his missing firearm to murder Mr. McGrath, this might be noticed, the sound of a gunshot or gunshots in Hallswell on a Monday morning. However, due to the suppressor and subsonic ammunition, you will hear evidence that the sound of discharging it in his semi-rural, isolated property is not as loud as you might think, more akin to a click. From TV, we might all think that shooting a person with a firearm would create an awful mess. However, a .22 calibre bullet does not usually exit the body.
0: On that second point, the, quote, awful mess of a murder, the Crown called Martin Sage, a long-time forensic pathologist in Christchurch. Sage testified that in his 35-year career, he'd seen between 100 and 120 fatal gunshot wounds to the head with .22 calibre rifles like Benbo's he could recall only two cases where the bullet had entered and exited the head. Sage also offered this theory.
3: In a scenario where an assailant has fatally shot a person in the head with a .22 calibre rifle, firing conventional hollow-point subsonic ammunition, I would not expect this to leave significant trace evidence of bone, brain tissue, scalp tissue, or even blood at the scene. If the deceased was attended to more or less immediately, and the head contained in some absorbent or waterproof wrapping, there might be no blood loss at the scene at all.
0: But of course, it was just a theory, and one that Sage accepted in cross-examination was based on a number of assumptions. The only other evidence supporting this part of the prosecution case concerned the timing. By the Crown theory, the killing would have happened between 9 and 10am because Benbo had a counselling appointment at 10, which he kept. He was a little late, his car was seen on a traffic camera in Hallswell at 10.04, but he was there. His counsellor, who you heard from in episode 2 when Benbo made his annihilate comment, she said there was nothing strange about Benbo's behaviour that day. The first thing he mentioned was spending the previous day with his daughters and taking them to the swimming pool and the library. The Crown's alleged timeline resumes that afternoon. Remember, this is still Monday the 22nd of May. This is when the Crown claims Benbow disposed of McGrath's body in a remote place he had likely chosen in advance. The exact location is the abiding mystery of this case. Michael McGrath's body has never been found but the Crown argued that a likely spot was somewhere just north of Lake Ellesmere on a low-lying plain just south of Christchurch, mostly farmland and crisscrossed by rivers that flow into the lake. Just before 3.30pm that Monday, Benbo was seen at a service station in Taitapu, a village just south of Christchurch, about a five-minute drive from Hallsworth. He doesn't buy gas, he'd actually been seen on CCTV filling up at a different service station in Hallswell that morning, but the camera captures him walking across the forecourt and inside the store. He buys something with cash, and emerges a few minutes later holding a white paper bag. Then, he drives off to the south, away from his house, and towards that area I mentioned, around Lake Ellesmere. Now, After our last episode, you might be recoiling at the idea of more CCTV footage, but don't worry, the quality this time is really good. It's clearly Benbo, and clearly his silver Toyota Camry. In fact, it's good enough to see that Benbo is wearing different clothes to what he had on at the other petrol station earlier in the day. All up, Benbo would be seen on camera in three different sets of clothes that day. The Crown made a lot of this at the trial, particularly the clothing changes and the fact that Benbow could never fully account for his movements. Three formal police interviews with Benbow were entered as evidence. We'll hear more from them in a moment, but first, it's worth reiterating the defence's rebuttal to this, because you're not going to hear an alternative theory to the Crown case. The defence response is simply, nothing unusual happened. David Benbow wasn't doing anything suspicious, let alone criminal, and if he was, police would have found some physical evidence, anything to support that. The prosecution, it argues, is overreaching, overinterpreting, and looking for evidence to support a theory, rather than the other way around. So, to the interview room. Police, as you might expect, tried to pin David Benbow down on what he did on that crucial Monday. After his counselling appointment, Benbo said he might have gone to a mate's panel beating shop called Rust Repairs about his car, but other than that, his memory abandons him. The clip you're about to hear is from his second police interview on May the 31st, nine days after McGrath disappeared.
2: You can't recall a single thing you did after the Rust Repairs for that one
4: because oh, you're not working, then there's no real... If you <laughs> it's not working, there's no real rush to to doing it, is there? You might just do something for an hour. for sleep, or snow,
0: snoozing, or go for a walk, or find a real relaxing time. Benbo's a bit hard to hear on that tape, but you're not missing much. He can't remember. Maybe he took a nap or went for a walk. He was off work that week, so it's all a bit hazy. So do you recall anything
2: that day? Sorry, do you recall anything that day after the rust repairs?
0: Rust repairs. That's the panel beaters he thinks he went to. He definitely did drop his car there on the Tuesday, but the Monday visit was never confirmed. The panel beater couldn't remember. The detective stays on the case. Just
2: really cast some more in the sink That's bit. If he came for us.
0: There are some long pauses here. More than 30 seconds sometimes. We've cut them down. Oh,
2: can't recall, really recall, right? What about anything you did that night? Or afternoon? Um, Monday night. Monday night. Um,
0: Big pause here. I
2: was just at home.
0: I think I was just at home.
2: You think you were where you were? or i pretty sure I was. What? Okay. Anyone come and visit? Or did you make any calls? Or?
4: Um, I think I visited.
2: Can you recall any further detail from Monday?
0: This went on and on. Maybe I mowed the lawns, had a snooze, nothing much, can't remember. No details and certainly nothing about a trip out of town. So here's what the prosecution thinks he was doing for the rest of that Monday and into the Tuesday. Once again, a reminder, this is just the Crown Theory the supporting evidence is circumstantial. The service station footage in Taitapu captured Benbo on his way to dispose of Michael McGrath's body. He'd likely did this somewhere near the north shore of Lake Ellesmere. That CCTV camera takes in the main road and it doesn't capture Benbo's Camry making a return journey that day. So the Crown theorized he went home after dark or by a different route. Once he got home, the prosecution said, Benbo's next job was to move McGrath's car. If he was going to tell people later that McGrath never showed up at his house that morning, he had to get rid of it. The Crown said he'd probably moved it off the roadside and out of sight shortly after killing McGrath. All he had to do now was drive it back to McGrath's place on It's Ave. But here, Benbo struck trouble because McGrath's old Subaru had a dodgy battery and the car wouldn't start. This was backed up, the Crown said, by two phone calls Benbo made that night, the only time he used his cell phone all day. First, at 7.07pm, he called his mate Paul Floris. You might remember Floris from the last episode. He was the ex-partner of Tony Green, Joanna Green's sister. Floris told the court that he didn't pick up but that Benbo left a message asking to borrow a battery charger because he needed one for his mother's car. One minute later, Benbo called another friend, Ashley Beveridge, but Beveridge didn't pick up either. Benbo later showed up at Beveridge's house. The time here was never confirmed, but probably around 9 p.m. Again, asking for a battery charger. Again, he said for his mother's car. Beveridge told the court that he gave him a jump pack a kind of portable battery with jumper leads for starting a car. The prosecution alleges Benbo used this to start McGrath's car and drive it back to check its ave. To bolster this theory, investigators later examined the batteries in McGrath's, Benbo's and Benbo's mother's cars. This is a little complex, but here's Detective Craig Lattimore describing the results of testing McGrath's Subaru.
3: The Subaru's engine would not start at that stage without assistance from jumper leads. The engine did turn over slowly off the battery, but there was insufficient power in the battery for the engine to start. When I used the load testing feature, the battery went down to 0.01
0: of a volt. Most car batteries are 12 volts, but the measure of how well they're working is the voltage under load testing, so when it's actually being used. McGrath's car battery had quite a high voltage, but it did really badly on that load test. Here's Lattimore again.
3: Basically, that means that the battery's got no no grunt or no guts left in it. It's extremely low, it's flat.
0: The battery in Benbo's Toyota Camry measured 9.5 volts under load testing. And the Toyota Corolla belonging to Benbo's mother, Shirley, the car that Benbo told his friends he needed a battery charger for, it had 11.6 volts on load testing. Prosecutor Claire Bosch's final question to Detective Lattimore made it clear.
1: Did you try to start Mrs Bimbo's Toyota Corolla?
2: Yes, I did, yes.
1: And what happened when you tried to start it? It
0: started fine. The defence mounted one challenge to this theory. A prosecution witness named Shane Christie, a research scientist and expert in car batteries, told the court that, of the three vehicles in question, McGrath's Subaru, Benbo's Camry, and his mother's Corolla, it was the Subaru that was by far the most likely to have needed a jump start on the night of May 22nd. A car battery that's in good nick wouldn't lose its charge when left sitting. But Christie also said there was no way to know for sure if McGrath's car would actually have needed a jump. In other words, Assuming McGrath drove his car to Benbo's house that morning, would 12 hours sitting idle at the property have been long enough to drain the battery so that it wouldn't start when Benbo went to move it? Here's Defence Counsel Mark Callit questioning Christie.
3: You agreed that the Subaru, when charged, could support a start, but it was just not possible to say how long it would <coughs> hold sufficient charge, whether that be minutes, hours or days. Correct. And am I right that the police, Detective Lattimore or nobody else, did any testing to ascertain how long it would, once fully charged, actually support a start? That's
0: correct. So the prosecution hadn't actually proven that Michael McGrath's old Subaru with its dodgy battery would have actually needed a jump start if it had sat idle at David Benbow's place for 12 hours. It may well have, but they couldn't be sure. They also never found any CCTV footage of a late night or early morning trip by a Sabaru station wagon being driven back to McGrath's home on its Ave. Remember, as we heard in episode 3, CCTV footage of what the Crown argued was McGrath's Sabaru legacy heading to Benbo's place on the Monday morning was a key plank of their murder theory. Despite reviewing hundreds of hours of footage, no evidence of a return journey or of Benbo walking back to Candy's Road after returning McGrath's car was ever presented.
1: A quality podcast on a tragedy that touched many.
0: White
3: Silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now.
0: Search for White Silence. The final part of the Crown murder theory was the clean-up. This, it claimed, happened mostly the day after the killing, Tuesday, May the 23rd. That morning, a car consistent with David Benbow's silver Camry was spotted on the CCTV camera at the service station in Taitapu, heading south, the same direction Benbow had gone the previous day when the Crown said he was disposing of McGrath's body. It was seen on the same camera driving back to town about 90 minutes later. There was no evidence about what Benbo might have been doing on that trip, if it was indeed Benbo, but by the Crown theory it was likely something to do with that body disposal. Remember the defence said Benbo was doing nothing suspicious, just going about his everyday life, and there was no proof to the contrary. Then in the afternoon, Benbo went to the dump. Again, we know this because he was seen on a security camera backing his Camry up to the edge of the pit, opening the boot and throwing some items away. Then he pulls the carpet lining out of the boot and gives it a few shakes and a kick, like he's cleaning it. The footage isn't super clear, but according to police who analyzed it, Benbo threw away, in order, a tied up white plastic bag, two handfuls of dark colored clothing, some dark-coloured pants, a pair of shoes with tied-up laces, a long, rigid, skinny item about a metre long, a small piece of fabric or cloth, and a piece of paper or plastic. Benbo was charged the minimum fee when he left the dump, so whatever he threw out weighed less than 20 kilograms. This footage was probably the most consequential CCTV evidence in the whole investigation, because it triggered a huge police search. Police theorised that the long, rigid object could have been Benbow's .22 calibre rifle. And perhaps the clothes and shoes were the ones McGrath or Benbow was wearing during the alleged murder. Teams of officers spent a combined 8,000 hours over 45 days combing through the landfill at Cape Valley, north of Christchurch, looking for whatever it was Benbow threw away. They never found anything. Benbo made a few other trips that day. He checked on his mother's place before he went to the dump. She was overseas at the time. And after the dump, he dropped his car for repairs at the panel beaters we mentioned earlier. Then he walked back to his mum's to borrow her car, put some gas in it, and went to KFC. That night, Michael McGrath's disappearance would be discovered. And as we heard in episode one, Benbo would get a call from Joanna Green, asking him if he had anything to do with it. The Crown argued that this was a pretty busy couple of days for Benbo. He'd bought petrol three times on the Sunday and Monday, $80 worth all up, normally what he'd spend in a week. And because his Camry happened to have failed a warrant of fitness test the week before, And because police later seized it from the panel beaters and checked the odometer at that point, they were able to definitively state that he had driven 642 kilometres in eight days. When he was asked about his movements on these days by police, Benbo remembered almost none of this. Here's what he said about what he was doing on the Tuesday, the alleged clean-up day. This is from an interview on May the 31st, so eight days later.
2: What about Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday, uh,
4: mowed the lawns and stuff and tied them off and shit and went to the gym or a walk.
0: It's a bit hard to hear him, but Benbo's saying he probably mowed the lawns on the Tuesday, tidied up and maybe went to the gym or for a walk. The detective doesn't buy this. He wants more details. Even asks Benbo if he has memory problems.
2: I don't, I'm just struggling to get a handle on the reasonable vagueness here at certain times, David. and then you know you just you remember some certain points of it. I'm just trying to get my head around that. And do you have any problems with your memory at all, or? Uh, no. So. You don't think so. No. It's just the reason I asked, and I'm not being disrespectful here, but we're only talking a week plus a day. No, I don't really know what I do every day, do you? So <laughs> you? Well, oh, sure.
4: I think the work, I know today they've been to work, or yeah. they go to work, come home, get the jump, sit in, so...
0: Benbo was off work the week McGrath disappeared. Here he's saying that because he wasn't in his normal routine, it's hard to remember what he did. Of all the things he did on that Tuesday the only one he was able to remember was dropping his car at the panel beaters. After a bit of probing, he then recalled walking from the panel beaters to his mum's to borrow her car. Nothing about a possible trip through Taitapu, going to the dump, or even KFC. The detective eventually tells him they know he went to the dump because they have that footage already.
2: Your banking records, we looked at, where
0: you've spent money.
2: Tell me about the rubbish step though.
0: Tell me about the rubbish chip, mate. Rubbish um,
4: chip? Yeah, I've to a dump, yeah. When was that? On um, Wednesday.
0: Benbo freely admits he went to the dump, but says it was probably on the Wednesday, not Tuesday.
4: Tell me about it. Oh, like I said, I cleaned up, pulled up two red bins, and I pulled up, yeah, a lot of shit out of the sand, so i and pans some and... Uh,
0: it's a lot of stuff. Benbo says he'd filled up the rubbish bins at home, so he took some other stuff straight to the dump. The detective picks up on this. Remember, Benbo was charged the minimum fee that day, so he didn't throw out very much. And his red bins, red as general rubbish in Christchurch, they were due for collection on the Thursday. What did you go there for? Oh, it's,
2: it's
4: that right. yourself. Yeah, but must well just get rid of it, otherwise it's to sit around and play
0: around, and. Okay. Benbo's really hard to hear there, but he's saying I went to the dump to dump rubbish because I didn't want it sitting at home. Yeah, Victoria. This went on for a long time. The detective asked over and over again, what rubbish was he getting rid of?
2: What did you out there? To throw the throw clothes
4: and rubbish and levers on the Garrett, uh, yeah, foxes, so general rocks. Can you be more specific? In what I said, old clothes I don't wear anymore, so I've got to clean it out the so i so, so new clothes and stuff. So.
2: You've been very general here, mate. Okay, I, I really want you to cast some on that to when you were there and exactly what it's throughout there.
0: You get the picture. Benbo never gives a more specific answer than this. In his defence, remember police never found any evidence whatsoever to support this suspicious-looking CCTV footage. They searched a landfill for weeks. They combed Benbo's Toyota Camry. Nothing that pointed to a murder or someone cleaning up after one. In closing the defence case, Mark Callit-KC summed it up.
3: The search of the Camry was thorough. No evidence of the car being cleaned in any way. That was confirmed by the police. Nothing in the boot that looked like there'd recently been a body uh, in it. No visible blood. ESR, luminol testing, no reaction. Hair and fibre tests in the boot, nothing of interest. DNA, uh, Mr McGrath's DNA was not identified in any of the samples taken from the camera. Dump footage, the dump footage. Remember, Remember what happened with the boot liner? Mr. Benbow shook it a couple of times and kicked it. This is the stellar forensic cleanup that the Crown would have you believe.
0: This is not the last time Benbow will be questioned by police. In the days and weeks that follow, what he says and does will be intensely scrutinized and eventually presented in court as further evidence of a murder and a cover-up. In particular, he'll be asked about his missing gun. Next time on The Trial.
4: Well, he stood up and said, Oh, for fuck's sake, Lenny. do you think I asked him round, put some tarpaulin down on the grass and told him to stand there and, and shot him? He got quite animated and said, I don't give a fuck, it just teaches you not to introduce your partner or wife to another man.
0: You've been listening to The Trial, a stuff podcast. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press Newsroom in Christchurch. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Thanks to Kamala Heyman and Martin Van Boenen. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and leave a review. It helps other people find it. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz podcasts.
1: If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.
3: The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify
1: now. Search for Black Hands.